0: lot talk radio it is uh january 2021 and welcome to the first drive-through hr show of the new year i am uh, robin schooling along with michael vandervoort hey mike
1: hello robin happy new year
0: happy new year
1: we hope uh- <laughs> It 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 will be it will be yeah, it's it's got to be better, right? It's 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 exciting right out of the gate. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is, is still happening even as we speak. But yeah, it's it's good to be back. It's good to do the first drive through of the year, and so far so good. How about you?
0: Yeah, I'm gl- I'm I'm glad to be back. I um I don't I, I I have a an adjusted mindset, I guess I should say for 2021. I don't necessarily sit down and do resolutions and, you know, like goal setting boards and stuff like that, that people do. But, um, I don't know. At the end of the year, I was just kind of like worn out and I've kind of done a mental reset of, of my brain. So, um, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. 2021.
1: Good. I wonder how our guest is feeling. I wonder. (laughs) Our, our guest is uh, David Przbilski. David is an attorney with Barnes & Thornburg, and I forget which city you operate out of, David, but you're a labor law and employment lawyer. Uh, so first of all, welcome to Drive Through HR. Thanks for joining us for the first show of the year. How are you doing in the new year?
2: I'm doing great. Happy New Year to both of you, and I'm really looking forward to being here. Yeah, I'm out of our Indianapolis office um, at Barnes & Thornburg, and I am, uh, as you said, I am a management side labor and employment lawyer. Focusing exclusively on interests um, for employers within that space. So, really looking forward to discussing with both of you what 2021 has in store. And I'm with both <laughs> of you. I don't think it can get worse from 2020. Um, you know, I'm knock <laughs> on wood as I say that, because of course, um, I think we all said that multiple times last year, and it seemed to get weirder and weirder, and depending on your point of view, worse and worse in some respects. So, I'm looking yeah. forward to hopefully better things in 2021.
1: Absolutely. Uh, me too. I I I I remembered when you said it, which is how my memory works sometimes, that you were in Indianapolis. I lived in uh Livington for around 10 years. Uh really oh, that's worked great. at worked at an office over off Post Road in Indianapolis. So yeah, so uh anyway, good 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 memories of that time, which was prior to 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so we so we've, we we've booked a 45-minute show today because we had there's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but I think the I think the plan is to talk about labor and employment law and some of the things that will happen. And we're still sort of, it looks like, we know, Uh, I mean, I've been checking the, I've been checking the news stories out of Atlanta right up until this minute. And many people on Twitter seem to be convinced that the Democrats flipped the Senate, but the, the new MSNBC and CNN and none of the news services have called it. The last time I looked, John Ossoff, led uh, David Perdue 50.2 to 49.8, and there were less than 90,000 votes left to be counted. And the news media said it probably will lean towards Ossoff because it's in, the, in counties that favor, around Atlanta that favor the Democrats. So it looks like they might have gone blue, but we don't know for sure. Um, and I think if that actually happens, David, that's going to make it a much different environment than it would, it would be if, if it was equally split, right?
2: Oh, I think there's no question about it. I think from a labor law and employment law perspective, there's a lot of things that Democrats have been talking about um, in the last few years, but frankly, um, even dating back uh, to the Obama administration before that, that they didn't get done during the Obama administration, I think is going to be on the docket where if you would have had a Republican-controlled Senate, the chances of those types of things making their way through would have been slim to none, whereas now if you have a Democrat-controlled Senate where uh, Kamala Harris obviously would be the deciding vote, the chances of some significant employment and or labor law legislation being passed go up significantly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, and, and, this even harkens back to Obama, President Obama being elected in his first term, when the uh, the legislation that labor unions and uh, labor organizations had drafted, called the Employee Free Choice Act, which is often mm-hmm. called EFCA these days, EFCA was a big thing, and it, it many people on the business community in 2007, 2008 thought that was going to pass with a with an Obama pres- presidency and a you know a Democratic-controlled House or Congress rather. But it didn't happen. President Obama spent a lot of political capital on getting uh, ACA passed. And then the Constitution of the House and the Senate changed and that FCA kind of went by the wayside. So FCA is no longer the thing, but they've actually propped up a new set piece of legislation that has already passed the House called the PRO Act, which I think I'd rather not go into that right now because that's like the – that's like the biggest thing that would come, and that would be massive changes. So let's kind of save that towards the end and, and kind of start with, let's assume that it's a split Congress, um, and so that, you know, they don't, the Dems don't have it full control. What, what kind of environment do you see coming under in that circumstance from the Biden administration? What are some of the changes we might see, David?
2: Sure. So if we have a split Congress. I think the chance for legislative change for labor and employment probably goes down significantly. However, um, with a split Congress, even with a split Congress, obviously, President Biden will be able to and will appoint different heads of the various agencies that impact private sector employers on a daily basis. Right. So OSHA, mm-hmm. EEOC, Department of Labor, National Labor Relations Board. Although heads of those various agencies will change under Biden and they will have a different set of priorities. Look, like I don't want to get into political leanings or anything like that, but I think objectively right. we can say from an employer flexibility standpoint, Republican presidents, including President Trump, tended to appoint heads of these agencies that had a more friendly view towards giving employers discretion. To do things as they want to do them from a business perspective, whereas Democrats traditionally appoint people who are more in favor of regulation that hamstring, um, I don't want to be pejorative with that term, but that's the term I'm going to use that would hamstring employers with their ability to do things. So I think out of the gate, you know, a change at OSHA, I think OSHA has been criticized by many people. Um, particularly on the worker side of things and the union side of things for being too lax in terms of some of the things they've been letting employers do and manage with respect to COVID. I think we can expect Mm -hmm. OSHA, for example, to be a lot more aggressive in setting forth protocols that need to be followed for workplaces that will continue to operate while the pandemic goes forward. You know, the department of labor, I think we can see a lot of crackdowns on independent contractors. If you're a uh, gig economy, Company like an Uber or a, a DoorDash and those types of companies and you have an independent contractor model, I'd be very nervous about a revamped Department of Labor that's going to have increased scrutiny on those types of things. From a National Relations Board perspective, obviously that agency, um, I think in my world, most people identify that with the swings in administrations more so than any other because mm-hmm. the president will appoint um, Three of the five board members with the leanings that kind of coincide with them. So I think we can expect President Biden within the next year, two, year and a half, depending on when these current terms at the National Relations Board expire, to appoint a majority of pro union members. So a lot of the changes we saw under Trump that most employers would say favored them um, will start to get dialed back, and a lot of the initiatives. That um, got started under President Obama, and maybe didn't um, some of them that didn't get all the way off the ground under President Obama will come back into focus, and we'll see a lot of changes from that perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think because Robin, I knew we
0: were gonna go have this, um, have our uh, you know have a employment law chat today, I was being an HR nerd this morning and looking at uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at all those sorts of things, and I saw like the, the get uh, the DOL. Uh, today came out with their final rule, um, just really clarifying some things on independent contractors versus uh, employees. So the final rule is done. They're publishing it tomorrow. It's in effect sometime in March, I think. Um, So, you know, obviously that's – and and reading through it, it's it's good. I mean, it's one of those areas where stuff needs to be clarified, um, and they seem to tighten it up a little bit. More so you know some things have have been um, i think it's really kind of a bipartisan thing that 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 rule seems to be but uh you know I, that's as you mentioned you know if you're the you're the- you're the ubers you're the door dashes you're whatever just the um that's been just such a hot item, and uh I guess I just see that whole are you are you an employee? Are you an independent contractor? Kind of those things moving towards more and more probably litigation over the over the next several years.
2: Oh, I think that's right. And I do think as you noted, the current rule that's gonna go into effect early this year that they just announced today was a bipartisan effort, but I would say this. I think under Obama and a lot of the states that are Democratic-controlled have a much more restrictive view of independent contractors. Yeah. And we often see California. it with the change of When Yeah, exactly, right, the ABC test. So we yeah. often see when you have a new head of an agency, even if there was a prior bipartisan effort, maybe there was some horse trading going on or what have you, um, I think that could change depending on um, kind of the mood of the moment, right? And I yeah. think the gig economy one's a tough one because I think – Um, A lot of the people in the gig economy, both the companies and the people who actually do those jobs, don't mind the independent contractor model, but you have a lot of these worker advocates who think that the independent contractor model is the worst thing in the world because these people aren't eligible for overtime benefits, etc. Uh, you know, it's one of those areas where people want to overregulate it, where, you know, you have people on the other side saying, well, why are we going to overregulate something, which seems to be working great for consumers, great for most of the workers, mm-hmm. or many of the workers anyway, as well as the companies mm-hmm. who want to use this model. So I'll, that'll be an interesting mm-hmm. one to watch uh, as in the coming years, I think.
1: Yeah, one, one that's, uh, I mean, one that's, I think, still developing a lot and probably will continue for years is, the, is COVID, uh, and, and there's several areas, I guess, David, but one of the big things that they were talking about prior to this last stimulus package was that Mitch McConnell um, wanted uh, like, uh, like a, a, wanted to give employers immunity. Sorry, my brain is glitching on me here. He wanted to have employer <laughs> shield against, legis- against litigation, but that, that didn't happen. Um, I saw a story yesterday out of Canada where the city of Toronto is going to start next month requiring all employers to file a monthly report about all their cases I know Canada isn't the U.S. and we have 50 regions and all that kind of stuff, but what do you see in the, like in the short term and the longer term right now with COVID and some of the stuff that's going on with that? Will we see a different response from the, the Biden administration on reporting and that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, I think we can expect from a Biden administration for them to be much more aggressive in terms of what they're going to require from employers from a reporting standpoint, potentially what procedures and protocols that they might require for employers to implement who want to continue to operate during the pandemic. And I do think we can kiss employer liability sh- shields goodbye to the extent they were – Realistically, on the table to begin with. Um, I don't foresee mm-hmm. a Democrat controlled Congress or a Biden administration supporting liability shields for employers in this context. So I think that is going to be a very important issue to watch. Now, obviously, nobody knows when the pandemic's going to come to an end definitively. Hopefully, again, I'm knocking on wood for the second time already this show. The vaccine has its uh, intended effect and it's as effective as we all hope it will be but even so realistically right we're probably looking six to eight months um before that starts to truly impact the numbers in a meaningful way so i think one of the interesting things michael will be if this administration and or this congress mandate certain things for covid like reporting obligations or safe workplace practices right what is that end date going to be are they going to put an end date there are they going to do it like they did with the Um, emergency paid sick leave and things like that last year where they had it cut off on December 31st. Are they going to pick a definitive end date? Are they going to come up with some other method to identify an end date or will they leave it open-ended? Meaning now employers are going to be stuck with this whole new regulatory framework that was implemented for the coronavirus. But since it was no current end in sight, they're going to leave it open-ended and all of a sudden we're going to have some reporting obligation hanging over us and then, what happens when another virus comes out next year? I hope that doesn't happen. I'll knock on wood for a yeah. third time. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: but, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yeah,
1: the other the other thing, um, board with the NLRB, um, you have Peter Robb as the general counsel, and then we have John Ring and the three other members. Uh, John's the board chair. That'll get flipped pretty quickly, I think. Uh, Lauren McFerrin will become the lone – she'll become the chair of the NLRB, but she'll also be the lone Democrat leaning member out of four I guess Um, and I think Bill Emanuel has the first term that comes up in August so it's going to be a little while with the NLRB before we see uh, much happening I think I wonder if you have any thoughts there
2: no I think that's right I think as you noted um, the NLRB is interesting so each seat has its own term limit so I don't think we'll see immediate changes in 2021, I think realistically we're probably looking at 2022 until Biden can get his majority. So the Trump board has a little bit of time to issue some final decisions. They have a few administrative rules hanging out there that need to be finalized, a couple with respect to union elections and things like that. So I think the Trump board has a little bit of time to do some things. But obviously, as soon as that flips in 2022, it'll just be a matter of time before a Biden board can get – cases that they want to see overturned um, and reset in front of them. And obviously, as you know, Peter Robb's been, I think, one of the most underrated people from an employer labor law perspective to come into play in my career. Um, Peter Robb's done Mm -hmm. a host of aggressive things to try to undo Obama-era precedent that I thought was very problematic from employers. So, for example, you had the Purple Communications case from the Obama board that said employers fundamentally – had to allow employees the access to email systems to talk about forming a union if they wanted mm-hmm. to, regardless of employers generally proscribed employees from using email for non-work-related items, right? Um, mm-hmm. You had the ambush election rules that the Rob worked hard to go after and undo some of the things he could there. Confidential workplace investigations, right? Um, the Obama board, as you may recall, told employers, you can't require employees to keep – a workplace confidential, a workplace investigation confidential while it's ongoing, unless you meet one of very four um, strict exceptions. Um, you know, including if the investigation's already been compromised. Well, me as an attorney, I always advise my clients to try to encourage participants in a workplace investigation to keep it confidential so the integrity isn't compromised in the first place. Right? Uh, Peter Robb was successful in overturning that precedent, so I think there's a lot of different things the Obama board. Uh, Once they get a majority in 2022, we'll look to undo pretty quickly. And the rulemaking, I think that's one the National Relations Board prior to the Obama administration had only invoked rulemaking, I think, in one major time to deal with. Bargaining units in the healthcare industry back in the 80s, right? Obama came into power and his board used rulemaking uh, several times, and now the Trump board re- um, retaliated in kind, so to speak, and they themselves engaged in rulemaking a bunch of times. So I think now, in addition to all the precedent you saw flip flopping over the last, uh, you know, 30 year or I'm sorry, 50, 60 years, in the existence of the National Relations Board, it's now not just a change in precedent on a case by case basis, but you're going to see flip-flops and rulemaking and all those types of things as well
1: yeah it, it's really interesting about probably 10 years ago or more I went to a, a an American Bar Association labor conference meeting in DC and there was a panel that had Stephen Greenhouse the, the labor writer and somebody else and then Wilma Liebman uh and and that that discussion so you're looking at maybe 2000 I don't know five six seven somewhere in there um she was talking about rulemaking and it had never been done and she thought it was something the board should take up and, and and we've seen that happen pretty regularly since then, and probably will hmm. continue. I guess not just to your point. So, hey, Robin, I'm sorry t- talking labor law, so I'm oh, not yeah, no, the, the well, no,
0: I was just uh, I was just going to pile on with the uh, uh, you know who are the people going to be sort of thing because obviously Biden has not yet announced his uh, his pick for for Secretary of Labor, but I was you know reading you know it's it's like I feel like I'm in Washington, right? Oh, I got to stay up on the beltway gossip or something. But um <laughs> that one of his um one of the strong contenders potentially is um the former mayor um or Kurt maybe mayor of Boston who had also mm-hmm. been a president of of a laborers union.
1: So, mm-hmm. you
0: know, whether that's uh, Mar- uh Walsh Mayor Walsh Marty,
1: now, Marty Walsh. Now whether he's
0: yeah. Marty Walsh, whether he's ultimately the you know the choice the for labor secretary. I don't know but I I know his name has been tossed in there so there you've got a again you know potentially secretary of labor who's coming from that union side as well
2: Oh, I think that's a very excellent point I think and going back to the discussion on control of the Senate I think from an employer perspective a Democrat controlled Senate should give employers some potential concern because Obviously, if you have a Republican-controlled Senate, a Biden administration will have to nominate people who can garner at least some bipartisan support, right? They're going to need to get um, at least some votes from Republicans in order to get a nominee through. So somebody like a former president of a union um, might be a turnoff to all Republicans. Maybe not, but I think there's a good chance that happens, and that person might not likely – to get through or somebody like a Bernie Sanders, right? Probably not going to get any love from the Republican party. And frankly, uh, Bernie Sanders, secretary of labor terrifies me um, for my clients <laughs> as a labor is, and employment attorney. Um, but yeah, with the Democrat that, controlled David, Senate, sorry, what's that? But I
1: was going to say the good news on Bernie is that since it's a 50, 50 Senate, they can't nominate him because that would be able yeah. to lose a majority. So, so we're not getting any senators in, the, in, in this year. Anyway, I don't think, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead.
2: Oh, it's okay. I mean, that's an interesting one, though, right? Because Bernie, I mean, Vermont's probably not going to lose um, a Senate seat to Republicans. I suppose it could happen. You know, we saw Obama, as you said, Michael, focused all his attention on the Affordable Care Act his first couple of years. And I think a lot of people forget this, but Massachusetts actually temporarily elected a Republican senator for the first time and forever after the unfortunate passing of Senator Kennedy. Um, in an effort to block Obamacare. But, of course, the Democrats did their procedural maneuvering and found out a way to reconcile it and get it through without another vote um, in any event. So I think um, you might be right. I think hopefully um, that might be a deterrent from Bernie trying to come over to Secretary of Labor, but I know he was pushing pretty hard to get in that post. Um Bernie is going to be
0: a – uh, Bernie will be a committee chair. I forget of which committee, though, um, with uh, the with Democrat-controlled Senate anyway, so – I forget which 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 committee. So.
2: Well, I'm sure it'll be a big one.
0: Yep, yep. But
1: did, but, did you have another question, Robin, or are you good?
0: Oh well, yeah. I mean, I was just. Uh, uh, what do you think, uh, David? What? Um, where do you rank the fight for um, fight for raising the minimum wage coming? As In terms so, of a priority
2: So that's interesting So if I'm the Democrats To me that's going to be a big one right I mean just looking at it Put aside, put aside legal things for a minute But if you look at the political landscape right now The vast majority of the people who voted for Trump Were the blue collar workers Who historically voted for Democrats right It was usually yes. the Democrats They picked up huge gains In the suburban middle class household So I think from a political standpoint, if I'm the Democrats and of the progressive wing, like of Bernie and those people, um, they've been pushing for this forever. So it'll be interesting to see if that becomes a priority for them. It's something Democrats have talked about for years. States and localities such as New York City, Chicago, and all these already have things well above the federal minimum wage. So it'll be interesting to see – how high they can get that on an agenda. I think the other interesting thing, whether it be minimum wage or any of these other issues, will be, you know, you saw the Democrats who had the House, Senate, and presidency under Obama, and the only thing they really did in those first two years where they had that was the Affordable Care Act. You know, fast Mm -hmm. forward eight years, and you got Trump in the same position, and the Republicans have six, seven years to talk about health care and how bad Obamacare is, and they can put together one freaking bill that anyone could agree on mm-hmm. um, while they had all those chambers, right? The only thing they got done was tax, tax reform. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if this round of single-party dominance, assuming that is the case, um, they'll be able to coalesce and get something done more than just one big thing they want to accomplish. So, Will minimum wage or any other labor and employment law take precedence over things like climate change or a lot of the other things the Democrat Party has been talking about? I don't know. Um, But I do think um, with the PRO Act as an example, and we'll come back to that, having been passed by the House already in February of 2020, that's one that's probably got a little bit of a head start. Minimum wage (laughs) hasn't really um, been on the table in a meaningful way in at least 10 years.
0: I think it'll. And, and my my assessment is it's going to. Uh, again, here I'm pretending I'm in the Beltway, uh, which I just like saying. Um, I, th- I think it'll it'll be on the table relatively quickly because it's one of those. You know, it's it's um, it, it's climate change, it's immigration, it's uh, it's minimum wage. It's one of those sort of cornerstone campaign ideas that the you know, the progressive side of the party really you know, hey, this is something we we need to fight for. Biden, you want us behind you. This is this is up there. So will it get anywhere? I don't know, but I I think it's going to be I think there'll be sponsored bills fairly quickly.
2: Oh, I agree with you, Robin. I think, you know, minimum wage, paid family leave laws, you know, yeah. a lot of people have talked about making family medical leave act paid. For a long period of time, you know, the ban the box type things, Biden's come out very forcefully against non-compete agreements. Not a lot of people have been talking about this, but for any Mm -hmm. companies who have um, non-compete, non-solicitation agreements, the Biden administration has said, and this isn't just them having this buried in some 400-page platform document, right? They have actually come out and said and been forceful on they're very skeptical of employers having the right to have restrictive covenants and non-compete agreements in place for employees who might want to pursue an opportunity with a competitor, for example. So I think yeah. you're absolutely right. I think we're going to see a lot of sponsored bills. Whether or not they can gain traction and the party can coalesce around pushing any of these through, I guess, will remain to be seen. But, again, if they have control of both houses, all these things are definitely on the table, and we need to keep an eye on them. Yep.
1: yep. Yeah. I want to go back to uh, I want to I want to circle back to something you said a second ago, David, and that is you mentioned like fight for or not fight for fifteen that's how I think of it, but you mentioned the fifteen dollar minimum wage and you mentioned that it's passed you know in Seattle and New York City and you know some some municipal laws and in, in some states um, and there's there's a whole slew of there has been a whole slew of organizing. Um, on the Democratic side, on the labor organizing side, um, not in not in getting campaign elections filed, but in policy changes over the years, and I think that it, that a lot of that developed in resistance, if you will, to Trump, right? Trying to trying to bring progressives, trying to bring stuff forward. But like where I live in Florida, we had a ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars on a graduated scale starting next year it'll go up, you know, every year from now until 2026, I think, when it hits $15, and it passed by a bear, by the barest margin, but it passed in a state that's generally viewed as having been red. Um, and I think there's a lot of other things like that laying out there that we may now see mm-hmm. come together in some some sequence. You know, to to some, you know, they're going to probably try to float these things up and and get them passed more rapidly in in the federal area where they hadn't been able to do that for several years under the Trump administration. So I wonder if you have anything there before we jump into PRO
2: Act. No, I do think, um, you know, I think you and Robin correctly point out, I think there's going to be a lot of quick action to get these bills put in front of people and to try to get some traction with them. But, you know, the devil's always in the details and everyone in mm-hmm. Congress, every state representative, every state senator is going to have his or her own particular pet project, so to speak. So it's a question of, particularly with the slim majorities, that's the only thing if you're looking for a grain of hope, mm-hmm. if you don't want to see a lot of change in any of these fears, right? Um, the slim majorities, I think, is going to be the biggest impediment to the Democrats because with such a small margin in the House and a virtual tie in the Senate, which means mm-hmm. um, Kamala Harris gets to cast the deciding vote, if there's a tie, they got to get every single one of those 50 Democrat senators lined up and be in support of a project. So um, Mm -hmm. to the extent people try to tack on a bunch of stuff that's not popular with everybody to some of these bills, that might tank some of these efforts. But I think you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. I think there probably will be a lot of maneuvering to try to get some of this stuff on the dockets quickly to try to see what they can get pushed through. Excellent.
0: I want to just jump in and do a quick reset um, because we're hitting about 30 minutes of the show, so anyone who's, Perhaps joined us here. We are on uh, uh, enjoying our first show on Drive Through HR in, in January, talking about uh, labor law changes coming here in 2021. So we're uh, we've got about 15 minutes to go yet. So um, Mike, you wanted to talk about Pro Act.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about Pro Act, and then maybe David will go into like executive orders or something like that. But the, the, so the Pro Act. I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. It, it, it's sort of FCA grown up and given steroids through its it, through its uh, puberty. It, it, it is it, it is a bill that has been written and introduced in the House and was already passed in the House by last year's House. So presumably they will, you know, vote a similar way this year. And the block the blocking of the pro act was always going to be by done by the Senate, um, if, if, assuming Biden won. And now we have an opportunity where we may see, and this may sound grandiose, but I think it's right, we may see the greatest uh, labor reform package, labor law reform package in, since the creation of the, the Wagner Act in 1935. Um, and it's got a lot of stuff in there. So David, do you want to kind of give your shot at what you think PRO Act is and maybe some of the important pieces of it?
2: Absolutely. And Michael, I think you drew a good analogy or reference when you talked about EFCA or the Employee Free Choice Act, but I would tell you this um, before we get into the specifics. I would cut off my left arm to see the Employee Free Choice Act in lieu of the PRO Act because, as you Mm -hmm. said, uh, the PRO Act is EFCA, everything that was in EFCA, plus a whole bunch of other crazy things. And there is no doubt that this would be the most significant piece of legislation since the Wagner Act in 1935. And in fact, I think it would be even much more significant than that in a lot of ways. Um, You know, there's a lot of different pieces to this, so I guess I can give you my top five. Um, components of this um, if you will so the first thing that I think is most problematic a lot of what I do in my practice is union avoidance I work with companies to develop um, positive employee relations strong cultures in an effort to stave off union organizing attempts and then those clients who are unfortunate enough to nevertheless have a petition filed for whatever reason I help them develop their campaign strategies do the legal maneuvering communications and those things to keep a union out if a petition is filed Well, in 2015, as everybody probably knows, and this happened on Tax Day in 2015, it was a double whammy for anyone living in the labor law universe, Um, the Obama board passed the ambush election rule, which prior to the ambush election rule, between a time an election petition was filed for a union and you actually had a vote by employees, the average time for an election was between 38 and 42 days, right? So we had about six Mm -hmm. weeks, figure out what the issues are, come up with our communications plan, and hopefully persuade our employees not to vote the union, so we could remain union free. Well, the ambush election rule came into place and did a bunch of things, but perhaps the most significant thing it did was it truncated that 38 to 42 day window down to what I've been seeing between 18 and 22 days. Um, so it significantly shortened the amount of time employers had to kind of get out in front of the issue and come up with their own campaign, so to speak. So the PRO Act would codify the ambush election rule. The Trump board has tried to dial that back. They've been successful in some respects, but there's a bunch of legal challenges with respect to some of the rulemaking procedures The Trump board invoked to trial dial those back. So it hasn't been repealed completely. Well, if this became part of the pro act and it was legislative, the national relations board wouldn't be able to do anything with it anymore. Right. It's now the law of the land. The national relations board cannot through rulemaking Trump what's in legislation. So I think as you're keeping in mind what the board has been doing over the last, 10, 20, frankly, 70 years, um, anytime there's a change by Congress, the board no longer has discretion to deviate what the law is. So it would codify the ambush election rules. Uh, The second thing on my top five list of the PRO Act that would happen is it would actually make right to work laws unlawful. So currently under the National Relations Act, states can pass and many have passed over um, half the states have passed at this point laws that make it unlawful for companies and or unions to require union dues payments as a condition of or union membership as a condition of employment um, so making union membership as a condition of employment um, obviously compels employees to pay union dues and states they have right-to-work laws many employees re- elect to not be dues-paying members um, in union shops so that gives those employees the opportunity to continue to work at their site of employment of choice without being compelled to remain a union member. And that's been the law for decades, right, the right-to-work laws. So we would see all the right-to-work laws go by the brave side. Um, Mm -hmm. The third one, and these are in no particular order, by the way. These are all pretty bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But they're a significant change, um, I think, that this should freak out a lot of people in the labor relations space in an organization. It would actually impose personal liability on human resources, executives, and labor relations professionals within an organization who knowingly violate labor laws in the context of an organizing drive. So if you have an HR director or somebody like that who goes out and threatens people with discharge in the middle of a union campaign, which they shouldn't do, I don't speak they shouldn't do, um, but right now that person can't be personally liable for damages stemming from that and those types of things, under the PRO Act, those people would actually face potential Personal liability through private causes of action against them for violations of labor law, so you would have your own pocketbook on the line at this point to the extent um, you or maybe your subordinates so you failed to properly train or maybe you did train and you just had somebody fly off the handle and do something wrong, you could potentially be on the hook uh, personally for those things. Um, the next one is card check, and so what card check is, and this was a big component of EFCA Is A union would no longer have to go through a secret ballot election process to come in and represent employees. If they went out and got enough people to sign union authorization cards, they would be able to come in and demand recognition by the employer. Obviously, anyone who's been through a union organizing drive knows that a lot of times unions will inflate their numbers or have a belief that they are going to kill it at the ballot box, but once people get behind that curtain and are casting their ballot and only them and God knows how they voted, um, more often than not, that number is significantly lower and, in fact, um, oftentimes higher for the employer than it was for the union. So secret ballot elections are always the way... Uh, me and my clients tend to want to go because that gives the employees the actual opportunity to express their free choice um, and not be pressured into signing a piece of paper. So a lot of times with authorization cards, for example, a union organizer will come into somebody's home, sit in their living room or kitchen, and badger them until they're willing to sign a card, right? Sign the card, sign the card, mm-hmm. sign the card. Fine, I'll sign the card. Not because I want a union necessarily because I want you to get the hell out of my house. Pardon my French. Um, those are the types of tactics we don't like to see. Um, in a union election and then finally um, binding arbitration which is another one um, that we saw in the Employee Free Choice Act and what this is is it would say if a union comes in and they get elected or under the the PRO Act I suppose if they got enough cards signed and they got deemed to have recognition as the bargaining agent of the employees if the employer and the union for that first contract can't come to an agreement and they reach an impasse right so the employer saying hey You know, from a business perspective, we're not willing to give more than a 2.5% wage increase for our first contract because business circumstances, looking at the outlook, all these things, we're not able to. And the union says, we want 7% and there's no way we're going below 7%. Rather than the parties, you know, work that out on their own, whether that be through a potential strike or a lockout or your other typical bargaining maneuvering, the board would actually be able to tell the parties, you now have to go to arbitration and you have to brief to an arbitrator your respective positions on the contract terms that are still outstanding. And then an arbitrator would come in, and they would read the briefs. You'd have some argument at a hearing like you do at a typical arbitration. And an arbitrator would then set the terms of your labor agreement. I mean, think about that. Somebody Mm -hmm. who has no knowledge of your business, your business circumstances, your outlook, everything that goes into your business will come in and says, you know what, ABC company, you're giving them a 5% wage increase next year. It doesn't matter if your balance sheet shows that you can't take a 5% increase or if you do take that five percent increase it's going to result in a massive layoff of the sector of your workforce that arbitrator will have the authority to set those terms in your company I mean, that is just mind-blowing right but that's the type of stuff that's in the pro act and i haven't even talked about half the things that are in there those are just five of the most egregious things i think we need to be concerned about
1: yeah i think there are something around 40-ish different uh you know sort of provisions that, of labor law reform in that. And you like you said, you just covered five. So we're looking at not even half with this discussion. Yeah. And, and probably this discussion made about half the HR people that listen with their eyes glazed over because we're talking about labor law. And I'm joking. <laughs> but seriously, I when EFCA was around, I, I, I remember talking about EFCA to, to colleagues, and not, not in my company, but, you know, at Sherm or whatever. And they were like, what's that? And I'm like, how, you know, how do you not – because if it passed and you had no idea, you were really – Kind of hosed as an employer, and I think you know there's some there's some uh, and you may you may agree or disagree, Robin, but I I bet you there's not uh, there's a good portion of the HR community that hasn't paid attention to the Pro Act in the last you know Oh, oh,
0: absolutely. There's a there's a large portion of the HR community that that hears the term you know National Labor Relations Act and thinks.
1: It has no bearing on their lives. So,
0: yeah, they certainly I don't have not to. Yeah, attention. I don't
1: have to worry about that. So, <laughs> so as, you can, as you can see, David, we have a high level of confidence in our HR audience. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm joking. We have, some really, we, have some, we have a lot of people. That not like our audience. Well, but I, not our audience, other people. Uh, but um, I guess uh, look for a comment. If you're, if you're one of those folks who hasn't really paid attention and all of a sudden this, you know, your CEO goes, what the hell is this Pro act thing? What would you tell people right now if they haven't started doing anything? What would you recommend they do?
2: So if you're a non-union employer and your CEO says, what the hell is this pro-acting? What do we need to be doing? Um, Michael, I've seen you post some great content on LinkedIn along these lines uh, a whole a lot of the time. And I think the key thing you need to tell your CEO is, if we have any interest in remaining union-free, what we need to do now, if the pro-act is passed, is make sure we have the type of culture where employees know they're valued, know what's going on mm-hmm. within the company, and will never feel like they need a third party to come in and advocate on their behalf because we already have their best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. I'm like, That's a pretty high bar, right, and no organization is ever going to be 100% perfect. But if you have an effective communications program with your employees and you're able to – give them frequent updates, I'm not talking daily, I'm not even talking monthly, but like quarterly updates on the state of the business. It so doesn't mean you have to show them a spreadsheet with EBITDA and all these complex economic terms, but employees want to know, and a lot of my union campaigns, one of their biggest grievances with the company is they don't ever tell us what's going on, right? They don't tell us the plans, yep. they don't tell us the outlook. I just come in during the day, I'd like to know some of that information. Well, unions tell employees, hey, you don't have a seat at the table, we're going to get you a seat at the table, including for that information, mm-hmm. right? You also need to be communicating with them Appreciation. You know, looking at 2020, for example, if you were an essential employer, and by the way, pretty much every client I had told me they were an essential employer, and I get it, right? Your company exists to be out there doing what your company was formed to do. But if your employees were coming in in 2020 and doing work to make sure your company stayed afloat, those employees should feel appreciated. And whether that's a pat on the daily, pat on the back saying thank you so much, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate you, or if you've been able to weather the pandemic in such a way where you can share some of um, the growth that you've had as a company, you need to be thinking about the things you can do to share um, your appreciation with those employees and make sure they know you're valued. Because if you're the type of company who isn't communicating with your employees, not expressing appreciation, and they feel neglected, all it takes is one worker to walk out of that building and have a sympathetic union organizer sitting over somewhere getting their ear and saying, well, hey, what has your company done for you lately? Or, hey, what information has yep. your company shared with you? Have they told you if you're going to have a job next year based on their outlook and those types of things? They'll say, you know what? They haven't told me that. Why is that? And the union says, you want that type of stuff? I can get it for you, right? And unions always promise the moon. In my experience, they almost never deliver, but they always promise the moon, and it's making those people feel seen and heard, which is what piques their interest and gets the interest. So under the PRO Act, as we talked about, the card check, If you want to stay union-free, I think it's more imperative now than ever to be thinking about, as an organization, how can you bolster your culture to make sure you won't be a target for union organizing? Or even if you're a target, you won't be vulnerable. Because you can't lose an election you never had, or in this case under the PRO Act, you can't lose recognition if employees aren't signing cards. Um, And as a final quick note on the PRO Act, Michael, if you're a union employer and your CEO asks, you know, what the heck's going on with this thing, I think you need to... Let your CEO know that there's a lot of things we need to start looking at organizationally to make sure our nose is clean on the unfair labor practices front, et cetera, because there's going to be increased liability, not just on an individual basis, but um, there's going to be liquidated damages and other things under the PRO Act that we didn't have a chance to talk about. So if you're a unionized company, there's a lot of things in the PRO Act that potentially impact you as well. Yeah, excellent. We
0: um, We are just about here at the end, so we're going to have to wrap it up um and and uh before I just ask you one final thing yet, David, let me just toss in there a lot of those things you said, um I want to give a shout out to our long time sponsor uh Michael will like this uh Q, Q Inc <laughs> right because talking yep. about anything kind of that proactive, positive look at employee relations you know that's 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 a great resource as well so shout out shout out to our long time sponsor
1: C- um, C-U-E-I-N-C dot um, com <laughs> that's
0: right um so um we're 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 down to just just about a minute or so here so david thank you so so much for um joining us today it was fast and furious as always um we will have a link to the show out and folks will be able to connect with you via that link but um for anyone listening um what's a good way for them to reach you can they find you on linkedin um through your firm's website Uh, how can they connect with you
2: Oh, absolutely, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and Q Inc. Um, outstanding content I've seen put out, so kudos to you, Michael. So if you want to find me, um, I have a pretty unique name. My name's David. Last name's prizbelski P is in Paul. R Y Z is in zebra. B is in boy. Y L S K I as in India. If you go to btlaw.com. That's B as in Barnes, T as in Thornburglaw.com. You can find me on there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, just as a quick side note, my dad has the same name as me. He's David A. <laughs> Przbilski. I'm David J. Przbilski. I'm the better looking one on LinkedIn. So feel free to go there Got and it. look for me. I push out a lot of content on that platform as well.
1: Hey, breaking Happy news, lunch. by the way, before we give up the last minute here, breaking news, and I can't do the beady b- b- sound, but John Ossoff has been called very likely to win the race by the New York Times with a plus 1.1 uh, lead right now, about 12,000, uh, so 98% of the COVID-in. So we, I, think uh, all, uh, I think we have an all-blue uh, administration across there all the public. Interesting. Thanks, David, so much for being on. I really all appreciate right. it. All right, thanks, a great
0: everybody. Job. And on that note, let's, uh, let's play some going out music. Have a good day. <laughs>
2: thanks, everybody. Happy New Year.